Bible or a smartphone, something you'll be looking at the passage with us this morning. I will be in Colossians chapter 1. Um, just a little bit of recap as we, um, we started Colossians just uh, three weeks ago. Um, and remember, this is a letter written from Paul. Paul is currently in prison. He's writing to a church that he did not himself plant. Um, he's never been there. He doesn't, has not met these folks in person. But he's writing with kind of pastoral, um, apostolic authority to them. For the most part, he's writing a letter that is very much encouraging them. There's a lot to, to like about the church in Colossae. Um, he's, and he's going to make some warnings about false teachers. And so it's a, it's a small, kind of waning, significant um, community. But it, it has a main thoroughfare through it. And so there's a lot of influence from other backgrounds, places, religions, ideas. Um, it's a young church, most likely under 10 years old. And so Paul is writing to just continue to keep them grounded and rooted in, 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 the, in the truth of Jesus. And so last week, um, we looked at uh, verses 15 through 20, which is this kind of soaring, big um, creed or poem of, of just the character and the work of Jesus, right? That would just kind of make your heart soar. Um, and so I want to read that to us again um, before we jump into this morning's passage. So beginning in verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Right, By far the most familiar passage, and just one that kind of makes you, your soul just want to lift up a little bit as you're picturing this poetic view of Him. But this morning, where we're going to go is really the beginning steps of application of this, of what Paul's going to say, listen, because of these truths that we can be rooted in, there's some things that we're going to need to know and some things that we're going to need to do um, that are, are maybe going to be less, less soul-like soaring. right? So, so we want to not forget this, because we're going to get into some harder things and what it means for us um, on, on a daily basis. So we're going to pick up in verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known." the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, 
which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And so we go from kind of this soaring um, idea into now some nuts and bolts. And in, in verse 21, if we notice, he does a really sharp contrast. Like, listen, elevated, preeminent Jesus, verse 21, and you, right? You, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is, he is drawing this extraordinarily sharp contrast to remind us we're not Jesus. And we're not almost Jesus, and He's not just a little bit better than us. There's this stark, beautiful, harsh contrast that Jesus is preeminent and we're not. That we're in need. And so this morning, today, we know that the and you that He's delivering to the church at Colossae is, is for us as well. And you were either, this morning, you fall into one of two camps. You too were once alienated and hostile in mind towards God. That was who you once were and you have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, as we've seen earlier in Colossians 1. Or this morning, you are still alienated and hostile in mind of God in the domain of darkness, needing a transfer into the kingdom of light. All of us fall into one of two camps. So that is either who we once were or who we still are. And so he continues, right? Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He wants us to feel the weight of this. Like this idea that there's two kingdoms. There's a dark one and a light one. That there's, there's two roles. That we're either the enemies of God or we're the friends of God. That we either do not belong to God or we've been invited to the table to eat forever with Him. Right? He's showing these two dark and light, sharp contrasts of who we are. And the idea that he's getting at here that we're hostile in mind comes from Romans Chapter 1, in verse uh, 21, read this. He says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Right, So it's not simply a, a, an idea of like, I either know God or I don't. It's like some people would recognize, I think there is probably God out there. I'm just not going to choose to submit to Him. I'm not going to give my life to Him. I'm not going to honor Him. He says, listen, you're futile in thinking, and, and it becomes darker and darker. And ultimately, this hostility that we have, and you're thinking, man, I didn't hate God. I wasn't at war with God. But we were. Right? If we're not trusting God, if we're not... Um, submitting to His authority, then we're at war with Him. We see this on a daily basis, right, for school teachers and parents and grandparents who are around children, right? Who would say, in general, I'm with you, but sometimes I'm against you, <laughs> right? And, and so for some of those kids, they are hostile in their thinking, and it comes out in hostility outwardly. Like, it is very clear where you stand and where they stand. But like myself... And like many people, and like one of my children, their hostility is internal. And they'll, they'll smile, they'll do the thing, they'll play the game, and they're thinking the whole time, you, don't, you can't tell me what to do. You're not my authority. I'm not going to listen. Like I'll, I'll pretend to listen, but you're not touching me, you're not affecting me, right? And so I've got one so far that is hostile outwardly. 
And I've got another whose hostility is more inward. It's harder to perceive. That we were once all hostile to God, and some of us it was outward fist-raising hostility. And for some of us it was, hey, we're just, going to do the, we're just going to do the moral American thing, but I'm not submitting to God. And it's just as much hostility because it's not trusting and it's not submitting to the authority that has been placed over us. Right? Why? We need to be reconciled. Right? He continues, if we look in verse 20 where we ended, that it says that through Him He was reconciling to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And He's reminding us we needed reconciliation. We were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and He is now, in verse 22, reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. Right? Like He has done the work of reconciliation. And He didn't ask for our help, and He did not need our help. That He has done what it takes to satisfy the wrath of God, to reconcile us and to offer it so that we can be right with the Father again. Listen, in reconciliation, there's been a break of... Re- if for reconciliation to occur, it means there's been a break in relationship. And the break in relationship is our sin against the Holy God that we have not submitted to Him. And in that, if we were going to reconcile two people who were once friends who are no longer friends, it takes humility because someone's going to have to admit, I did something wrong, potentially both of them. In this case, it's us admitting, God, you are this, you are 15 through 20, you are preeminent and holy and good, and I'm not, and I need you. I need to be reconciled to you, and I can't do that. Would you do it? And Jesus says, I have in my life, in my death, in my resurrection, on your behalf, I am reconciling you back to the Father. That Jesus pays the cost as the innocent one, not us as the guilty one. But there is still humility on our part to recognize it, to ask for redemption, forgiveness, for reconciliation, that then rebuilds what was meant to be, right? This harmonious relationship. And in that, then there's joy. Because listen, he continues in 22. He's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order. Why? To present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. He's saying, listen, Jesus is doing this, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, are now going to be seen as holy and blameless and above reproach, being presented to God. That he has done the work to reconcile you, and in order to do it, to, to bring you back into the family. That who you once were no longer defines you. It's who Jesus says you are now. Reconciled, whole, rescued, redeemed, no longer in the domain of darkness, holy, blameless, that no one can make an accusation against you because of Jesus. We see this contrast, and He wants us to fill it, and that's why right? He follows this poem with these verses in 21 and 22. Look now to 23. But he says, if, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven. So he reminds them why. Like, Listen, false teachers have emerged. And they're beginning to say Jesus isn't sufficient. And they're saying things like, there's other spiritual um, experiences you need to have. And so this is a warning passage. He says, listen, Jesus is beautiful. 
He's done the work. You are in need of the reconciliation. You have it, and this is now how He sees you. But if you're saved, you're going you're to persevere in this. You're going to be built on this foundation, and I'm warning you, don't stray from it. Don't come near to the things of God and then walk away from the things of God because it will reveal that you didn't know God. This, this foundation that has been built is Matthew 7, right? Our foundation, this solid rock, is Jesus. And in that story, right, the storm comes for the solid foundation and the, the sandy foundation. Storms in both. We don't get to avoid them. But in one, the house stands because it's built on a solid rock. On the other, it gets washed away. It's shown to not have had a good foundation. So he's saying, you have been rooted in Jesus. And to know that you're still rooted in Jesus is that you still have faith in this, that you're still grounded in this, that you're still progressing and growing in Christ-likeness. Perseverance is the mark of a true believer. Not that you one time prayed a prayer, or one time walked an aisle, or one time knew or said the right things. It's that you continue in that. It does not save you. It is a mark that you are saved. And our perseverance. That we continue to grow and stay on the trajectory and the foundation of Jesus. He then continues. Look at verse 24. He then tells them, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Remember, he's not yet met them. I rejoice in my sufferings, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, does 24 hit you? Like he just says, I rejoice in my sufferings, Seems a little strange. We don't want to like spiritualize this too much. People don't rejoice in suffering. Right? And then he continues, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Right? And and we've been taught Jesus doesn't lack. And so there's there's a, a tinge of like, wait a second, Paul, are you a heretic all of a sudden? Are you the false teacher? What is going on in this passage that you're rejoicing in your suffering? And that you say that you have something to add to Christ's affliction. Like we should, we should have a pause there. We're going to and we're going to come back to it, right? I'm going to leave you, leave you hanging for just a second. Um, so, now down to verse 26. He says that he's, he's wanting to steward from God what was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints which is going to tie back into 24 here in a second. What is the mystery that's been hidden? Like, what is it that He's there to present and to show, to give them so that they'll pass on? The mystery that has been hidden is Jesus. Right? It's the story of God's plan for redemption. Right? That if we go to Genesis 1 and see that the intention was, was harmony with God, right? Death to be absent, right? To be with Him. In, in Genesis 2, we have... Right, and, and sorry, in Genesis 3, we have the fall. And in the fall, there's this immediate drop of gospel in there. As he's cursing um, Adam and Eve and telling them, here's like death is going to enter the world, pain is going to enter the world, sweat and toil and, and, and difficulty is going to enter the world. You're separated from me, you're punished, you're in need of reconciliation. But there is one who is coming who's going to crush the head of the enemy. And his hill will be struck right at the cross. It looks like. Jesus loses. But he's like, in that striking, he crushes the head of the servant. Right? And so you can imagine people hearing that going, not sure what you're talking about. Then in Genesis 12, right, Abraham was pulled and said, you're going to be a nation, and you're going to bless the nations of the world through this people that I'm going to raise up from among you. People are like, okay, like, what, 
what's going on. And we have the exodus, this removal from slavery. We have a sacrificial system. We have a temple, right, where God dwells amongst His people, and yet there's divisions, right? There's places you can't go, and so God is near, but I can't get as close as I want. And then we turn to passages like this in Isaiah 49, verse 6, which says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. Listen, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Right? So this, this nation, Israel, is being told, like there's a problem, you need God, He's near, but you can't quite grasp Him, and I'm going to do something that's going to reach the entire world. Then the nations are going to come to see what it is that's going on. We can see this again in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. The one who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Right? This beautiful kind of poetic passage, and they're going, but I don't know what it means. Like, it's good, and I want more of it, and, and I know God's going to do it, but how? We can turn over one book to Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. And the prophet Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Right? And so all these pieces, there's temple, and there's sacrifices, and there's these kind of beautiful promises, and there's this promise that they're going to be a nation that's going to bless the world, and yet there's this recognition of, we need reconciliation. And, and it's a jumbled piece, right? A jumbled puzzle with all these pieces. It's the mystery that was hidden for generations. How is God going to do this? How is He going to put it all together? How is He going to redeem us? And Paul is telling the church at Colossae this, the one that makes it clear is the, is the image of the invisible God, Jesus. Jesus ties it all together. Jesus is the mystery that has been hidden. Jesus is the one that steps into the scene, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. In His life, in His death, in His resurrection, the mystery has been shown. It's no longer hidden. It is found in the person, the work, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. He's alive. Like when we pray, He hears us. And He's left His Spirit among us. And He's still ministering and working for our good and for His glory. Thus, He says, I choose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry, which is Christ in you, 
The mystery is this, is it is Jesus, and you get Jesus. You get all the good and the light, and you miss the domain of darkness. You've been transferred out. The hope of glory, and so in Him, we will proclaim it. We will be active in proclaiming. We will warn people that there's a need. And we will teach everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Again, this is a knock on the false teachers. There's no elite knowledge for a select group of people. The knowledge is here, and it's for all of us. There's, the mystery is no longer hidden. It is Jesus who reconciles, redeems, and restores, and makes us right with the Father. It's like, and I will pour my life out. I will be active, and I will toil to that end. Church in Colossae, will you do it with us? 2,000 years later, Redeemer, will you do it with us? Right? Like This is the call until Jesus returns. Which takes us back to verse 24. In the rejoicing and sufferings, in the filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Real quick, he is not saying that anything in Jesus' sacrifice was not sufficient. That it did not suffice. He is not adding any sort of redemptive element. We see this in Hebrews chapter 10. This is what Paul would believe. This is what we believe. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There is nothing to add to the death, the life, and the resurrection of Jesus. Paul is not saying there's a level of redemption that still needs to be done. Jesus has done it, and it is finished. And it is for our good. So what is Paul saying then? What Paul is saying is this, that in his suffering and in his broken body, it is a visual representation. It is a picture uh, to making it real to people. Right? It's something that they can look at and go, oh, this is real. Like God really will anchor your soul. He really will ground you. The storms of life really can come, and Jesus really is sufficient. And so we have seen, if you look in church history, whenever new ground has been won for the gospel, when the church has emerged, it has always been through suffering. It's always been through the blood of martyrs. It's always been through difficulty, through loss. Right? That it shines forth that this message has merit because people are willing to lose something to hold it. Cost something. When Jesus says in Mark 8, right, like to, to lose your life, you actually gain it. Right? To take up your cross, that it cost us something. Cost us something. So it's this visible. Vis, sorry, visible representation. We can look, um, if, if you've never read anything about um, church history or missionaries, there's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. There's some others that, are, that read a little easier. They just tell the story of faithfulness of people you've never heard of in the midst of execution, of death, of difficulty, circumstances, right? That, of how God was faithful in the midst of it. There's a book from... Uh, probably about uh, 15, 20 years ago, about two women who were prisoners of the Taliban in Afghanistan. And in the midst of it, they, they talk about being held in a compound. And afterwards, they, they survive. The book is called Prisoners of Hope. 
They have a line in there where they said, there are moments where we miss being there. And listen, they're not, they're not sadists. They're not going like, I want pain, I want suffering. They're like, Jesus was so near. He was so real. He was so tangible. He was so present. He took care of us in the midst of that difficulty. And in Fox's Book of Martyrs is just story after story after story for thousands of years of God being faithful to meet His people in the midst of the storm, to not leave them and not to forsake them, to rejoice and to be near. Maybe you have a story like this where you've seen someone face something that you cannot fathom, and yet they still love Jesus. And, like, and it, it, it buoys your soul. It gives you hope that that would be your story as well. Maybe it's been someone here at Redeemer as they've walked through something. Maybe it's been someone in your family or someone across the country. right? That is, you've seen the Lord minister to them in difficulty. For me, several years ago, it was a pastor many of you would know. His name is Matt Chandler in Dallas. But when he was diagnosed with, with brain cancer, I remember watching the video. Um, it was Thanksgiving week. And he's about to go into like surgery that's very unlikely whether he'll survive it or not. And he's standing before his, his church saying, you know, I've got a daughter and, I, and I, I want to walk her down the aisle someday. And I've got all these things that I want to do, but like Jesus is enough. And he's faithful. And regardless of what happens in the surgery, he's good. Like he's pastoring his church. As Paul is pastoring them here, he's telling them, listen, I don't know what circumstances are coming, but Jesus is sufficient and he's enough on the good days, and on the hardest days. Right? Paul will write this. This is first, or sorry, 2 Corinthians. He gives a list of the things that have happened to him. And listen to what he says here. He actually refers to himself as a madman. This is chapter 11, um, beginning in verse 23. I'm talking like a man, a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. Like, you're running through that list, you're like, whoa, 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 hey, Paul, explain. Like, that's a lot of stuff. And he's saying, listen, as, as this has happened, Jesus is sufficient. He's enough. And so, church, be encouraged. I don't know what's necessarily coming for you, but Jesus will be enough regardless of your circumstances. Listen, this is a weighty teaching that made me uncomfortable even this week as I was preparing for it. Right, that we can go to 1 Peter 4.12 that tells us, don't be surprised when fiery trials come. Don't be surprised, church, when hard circumstances and storms blow. Don't be surprised. And yet often we are caught off guard. We are surprised. In, in John 13.6, right, Jesus tells us, the servant is not greater than the master. Like, expect tribulation, persecution, difficulty, hard circumstances. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 
Verse 21, we see this. Peter writes, For to this you have been called. Listen, you have been called, church. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. That is not a fun teaching. Right? And yet we continue to see circumstances and suffering and persecution as being a thing. In Acts 5.41, the disciples, after they're beaten and left before the authorities, they leave rejoicing that they have been counted worthy right, to face dishonor for the glory of God. And we can quickly remove ourselves from that and kind of like rejoice from a side saying, not me, but well, thank goodness for you. All right, like We can almost like spiritualize that and rather than seeing it as potential reality. And then in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Colin's probably going to beat me to it. Um, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Like, oh, what? And we have lived in a culture, in a country for a long time where this has not felt like reality. And right now it feels more realistic than it's probably ever felt in most of our lifetime. And so Paul is speaking this morning and saying, listen, Jesus is sufficient in the best of circumstances and in the worst of circumstances. And the last year, year and a half, two years, however long you want to go back, um, our autopilot has been knocked off. Right? Like we, that, that like kind of sense of control that we think we have that we really don't has been made very clear that we don't have it. And yet the American church, kind of as a, as a whole, has, has said, listen, we're going to be about comfort and ease, and, and Jesus is going to get us more stuff and get us more comfort and get us more health and get us more wealth and get us more. And that is not the story of the New Testament. Paul is preparing our hearts. And I don't know what your particular circumstances, storms, or situations will be. But would you look at my life? Would you look at the lives of others and say, Jesus is sufficient? And so that what is, what is, what is lacking in Jesus' affliction, we don't see it. Right? We can read about it, we can, but we don't see it lived out on the daily. And yet suffering continue, continues to be a mark of the church so that people will see Jesus is faithful and enough and sufficient. Like, why are they doing that? Like, why are they living that way? Why are they trusting Him? So can I give you two encouragements this morning? Quickly. One, when suffering comes in your life, it means you get more of Jesus. He will not leave you high and dry. You will taste and see that He is good, that He is faithful, that He is near. You will get more of Him. He will anchor your soul. It's why Paul can say, I rejoice in my suffering. Because he knows there's a benefit for others, but there's also a benefit for him that he gets more Jesus. And that in, and in, in the fact that your suffering will be an example to others that will draw them to faith and belief in a way that your words wouldn't have. Like there's, it's not without purpose. It's not without meaning. Like God will use it for His name and His fame and His glory for our good. And so there's another contrast. If we go to Romans chapter 8, and we'll, we'll finish here. 
Listen to verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He is giving us a contrast. And he's not saying if, he's like, the sufferings that we will have, the difficulty that we will have, when, you, when your faith becomes sight and you're with Jesus, it is not that you did not suffer, but they will feel like nothing. They will not compare to the weight of glory that you will have. Right? He writes this to the church in Corinth as well. Like it, it won't compare. He's given us this contrast because of who Jesus is, this doesn't get the final say. Jesus does. And would we also be reminded of where Romans 8 ends? Then nothing can separate us. Listen, hear this differently in light of Colossians 1 this morning. Verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Not positive words. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the reason this passage is tied to 15 through 20 is we can't forget the preeminent Jesus. Because this passage can overwhelm us. And what Paul is saying is, remember Jesus. He is, he is it. He is the firstborn. He is the image of the invisible God. Why do you need that? Because storms are going to come and you're going to need something to be anchored and rooted in that will not fail and His foundation will not fail. The Word of God will not fail. Jesus is sufficient. Church, we need this every day. We do not know what the rest of the year holds, or next year, or the years to come. For us as a, a nation, for us as a city, for us as a church, for you as a family or an individual, we do know this, Jesus is enough. And that He will anchor our souls. He is sufficient. And it's why people go to Mexico City. It's why people go to far places in the world. It's why the church is always the last one, right? Like they're the ones taking care of, of folks on the front line. While the, while like aid workers, like Christian aid workers, are, they're always going, the, the country's going, hey, leave. And they're like, no, 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 we have work to do. Right? Like they're in a hard circumstance, but Jesus is enough. And so church, for us, it may mean that God calls you to a harder place than you're already in. It may be that He asks you to do the hard thing of spending your money differently of it not being about comfort and ease and security, but about living, right, in this world with an eye towards the hope that we have in heaven, our inheritance that is Jesus. So take the, the opening of Colossians 1 and let it anchor your soul for the hard things that Paul is going to ask us to walk in. Jesus is enough. Church, He gets us there. He does the work. He anchors our soul and He presents you as holy, blameless, and without accusation. Would you trust Him? Would you ask Him to remove fear and doubt? Would you begin to be able to see um, suffering as a moment to rejoice? Not that we, listen, we don't run to suffering, we don't create suffering, we don't 
rejoice in suffering because we're dumb and sinners. But when suffering comes, you get more of Jesus and His kingdom goes forth. Would we trust that this morning? Let's pray. Jesus, this is weighty and difficult and uncomfortable. God, help us to trust you. Lord, would you allow our feet to be anchored in you? God, that it's not our strong hand that keeps the grip of you, it's your strong hand that keeps the grip of us. It's not our ability to keep ourselves um, with you or near you. You do the work. So this morning, would we not feel weighted down and bogged down with, I cannot do this, but would we trust that you've done it, you have reconciled us, and you're going to present us pure and blameless, holy and without accusation. God, but that we are active in proclaiming, pursuing, knowing, and being faithful until our faith is made sight. Lord, we desperately want you, more of you. Would your Spirit sink this deep into our hearts and our minds? Would we chew on it and wrestle with it? And God, would you reveal yourself to be faithful? Lord, we want to sing to you this morning, our preeminent one. In Jesus' name, amen.